Some people who are struggling to conceive worry that the battle over abortion could eventually put fertility treatments in jeopardy. It's Monday, July 11th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. A key tool in the pandemic, a pulse oximeter, measures blood oxygen levels, but new research shows the devices can be inaccurate for patients with dark skin tones. We were given the false impression that the patients were okay. We were giving them less oxygen than they needed. The journalist Mark Leibovich discusses his new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. It's just been utter disappointment given the level of submission and the level of sort of soul selling that so many people uh, have been engaging in. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. A federal judge has ruled the criminal trial for Steve Bannon will go on with jury selection starting Monday. The advisor to former President Donald Trump tells the House committee investigating the insurrection he is now willing to testify. He is also facing jail time for contempt of Congress charges after defying a subpoena to do so. The panel, meantime, is proceeding with a hearing tomorrow looking at extremist groups that stormed the Capitol, but they've delayed a Thursday hearing set to focus on what Trump was up to at the time. They want to show how Trump's efforts to overturn the election led to the siege. President Biden gave remarks at the White House today hailing the bipartisan passage of a gun safety bill. Family members of gun violence victims were there, and NPR's Mara Lyason reports one was not happy with the ceremony and interrupted the president. Joaquin Oliver was killed in the Parkland High School massacre in 2018. Today, after President Biden said the new bill is proof that progress can be made on gun violence, Joaquin's father, Manuel, stood up in the Rose Garden and shouted, we have to do more than that. Oliver objected to the event being called a celebration, and in the weeks since the bill was passed, there have been more mass shootings. Biden continues to call for even tougher laws, including reinstating the expired ban on assault weapons, but he is facing a restless and critical Democratic base. A new New York Times-Siena College poll showed that two-thirds of Democrats don't want him to run again in 2024. Mara Liason, NPR News. A more transmissible strain of the coronavirus is now dominant across the U.S. Experts say those infected by earlier strains appear to have little protection against BA5. Dr. John Brownstein is an epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School. You're seeing this virus evolve quicker and quicker, and we'll probably see another variant in the fall. So the main question really is, can we avert really serious outcomes like deaths and hospitalizations? Hospitalizations are up about 5% from a week ago. Deaths remain low. Vaccines and medications continue to protect against serious illness. Russia struck the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv today with a barrage of missiles. NPR's Jason Bobian reports from Kharkiv, six people are dead, 31 injured. The airstrikes began at 3.30 in the morning and culminated in a barrage of rockets just before 10 a.m. local time. Some of the explosions were in the north of Kharkiv, near where Ukrainian troops are attempting to push Moscow's forces back across the Russian border. But several of the other rockets hit near the center of Ukraine's second largest city. One brought down a six-story apartment building. Another, according to the local prosecutor's office, killed a man and his 17-year-old son who were driving to get documents to register the teenager for university. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts voters will soon receive applications to request mail-in ballots for September's primary elections. Today, the state's highest court rejected a legal challenge to no-excuse mail-in voting and early voting laws in Massachusetts. The state's Republican Party had argued Massachusetts lawmakers violated the state constitution when they voted to make permanent mail-in and early voting The court rejected that argument and said it will explain its reasoning at a later date. Massachusetts House Democrats are out with a plan to offer tax relief to some Massachusetts residents. WBUR's Jonathan Cain reports they're proposing permanent changes to the state's tax code. If the plan is approved, seniors, parents, and renters would be eligible for higher tax credits. The estate tax cutoff would be increased from $1 million to $2 million, so the tax applies to fewer people. House Speaker Ron Mariano says these measures and proposed one-time tax rebates for middle-income workers will help people deal with inflation and economic uncertainty. This has been an ongoing evaluation of what has the best impact to, to the most amount of people. And, and that's what we tried to do. Mariano says the state would use $1 billion in surplus money to fund the tax relief. The legislature must act on the proposal by the end of the month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. Nantucket police and fire and the state's fire marshal say an improperly discarded cigarette is the likely cause for a fire that destroyed an historic inn. Investigators say the fire at the Veranda House and two nearby buildings in downtown Nantucket broke out Saturday beneath the front porch of the inn. Everyone made it out safely. The fire marshal says this serves as a reminder that cigarette butts should never be tossed into mulch. In sports, tonight the Red Sox are away against the Rays. It's 86 degrees in Boston, lows overnight in the mid-60s. Tomorrow a sunny Tuesday with highs in the upper 80s. Tomorrow night a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Wednesday sunny, a high around 90. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. In just about an hour, President Biden is set to unveil something truly remarkable, a picture of the universe and its galaxies in their infancy, around 13 and a half billion years ago. It's one of the first images taken by NASA's new James Webb Space Telescope. And joining us now for a preview of the image and what it all means is NPR's Joe Palka. Hey, Joe. Hi, Elsa. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. So let me ask you, what is it about the James Webb Space Telescope that gives scientists this ability to see these galaxies that, like other telescopes, haven't been able to see? Well, this is a really big telescope. It's the biggest space telescope ever built. It has this giant segmented mirror coated in gold leaf, and I've stood next to it. It it, it really is a remarkable piece of equipment. I, I mean, it was on Earth when I stood next to it. I haven't been up into space yet. <laughs> Now, (laughs) JWST, as the telescope is called, is an infrared telescope. That's a wavelength of light we cannot see. It's it's longer wavelength than visible light. Uh And to see it efficiently, you need to go into space where it's cold because warm objects tend to give off infrared light. You don't want to be looking at your neighbor's backyard or something like that. So the reason infrared light is key to understanding the universe and seeing these early galaxies is the universe is expanding and the light from those early objects is being stretched out by that expansion. 
So even though you, if you were standing next to the galaxy, which is also not I'm not doing, it would be visible because of the expansion, the wavelengths, the light that reaches Earth, is, are the wavelengths of that light are getting longer, and it's now in the infrared. So if you want to see it, you need to have an infrared camera. Ah, okay. So, so what will these like distant, young galaxies even look like, you think? Well, I have to tell you, they're 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 going to not look all that impressive because JWST is a big telescope. It does have a big mirror. It does capture a lot of light, but this is still light from thirteen more than thirteen billion light years away. So you only get a few drops of uh, light, and what it might look a little more like a smudge than anything else. <laughs> okay, but. Um, but still, the more of them they can find, the happier astronomers will be. I spoke with Caitlin Casey. She's an astronomer at the University of Texas, Austin, who is going to be using the telescope to hunt for more of these early galaxies. She wants to understand the large structure of the universe, what the universe would look like if you could step back and get a bird's eye view of it. If you zoom all the way out, the entire universe looks like you know something like the interior of a sponge where there are these like little filaments and voids and so what we really want to capture is that structure okay it's kind of blowing my mind that we're basically living in a giant universe-sized sponge but anyway so you know beyond <laughs> studying that structure what are some of the other things scientists hope to learn using the web telescope well well, I spent the last few days talking to people, and, and they're really uh, so excited, these astronomers. Um, they're going to be using it to study the, uh, the, the atmospheres of distant planets orbiting distant stars. They're going to be looking for a place capable of sustaining life, and they're going to watch stars and galaxies form. But the coolest thing, I think, is I spoke with Jean Turner from UCLA. She's studying massive stars that tend to hide behind interstellar dust, and, and uh, she says an infrared telescope like JWST will let her see those. What I love more than anything is seeing something unexpected. And that happens all the time. And I know it's going to happen with JWST. It's guaranteed. And, and I think Turner is making a pretty safe bet here because every time they take a new uh, telescope, a new kind of instrument, you see something you weren't expecting. And that's what makes it so really cool to get that first couple of looks. So cool. That is NPR science correspondent Joe Palka. Thank you, Joe. You bet. Monkeypox is very different from COVID-19. It's not fatal and generally doesn't lead to hospitalization. It is mostly not spread through the air. People have been getting it from close physical contact. And a monkeypox vaccine was developed long before the current outbreak. So public health experts say the U.S. should have been able to contain this. Instead, the missteps right now look a lot like the start of the coronavirus pandemic. There are not enough tests or vaccines, and experts have an incomplete picture of the spread. Anne Ramoyne is a UCLA epidemiology professor who has studied monkeypox for years. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, it's nice to be here. Right now, the CDC says there are more than 750 monkeypox cases in the U.S. How accurate do you think that number is? Well, I think that the, the here is, is that we just don't have enough testing. If you don't have widespread testing available, then your situational awareness is limited to just the groups that you're targeting. Uh, I'm certain that we have many more cases out there than we're aware of, and uh, many people who don't know how to access testing or people who try to access it who just are not able to, to get it given the limited capacity at this point. But this is a known disease, so why would the public health community have such a hard time monitoring it? It's been on the radar for years. Well, monkeypox is a known disease. 
But it has been something that's really been limited to uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central Africa in general, and then more recently in 2017, we had an outbreak in, in Nigeria. In West Africa, they just haven't had the resources to be able to to do this kind of testing that, that's needed. And, and we're running into the same problems globally. Just because we know about a virus and we actually know that there are, are ways to detect it um, and vaccines against it doesn't mean that the logistics of deploying those things are going to make it simple for wide access. The vaccines have not been available even to people who are high risk and living in hot spots. Is this something that the, the public health community could have been more prepared for in this way? Absolutely. We have known that monkeypox is a potential problem for decades. Um, in 2010, um, my colleagues and I published a paper documenting a very large increase in the incidence of monkeypox since the uh, eradication of smallpox and cessation of, of vaccination against smallpox. And so we no longer have immunity to other orthopox viruses. The good news is we have vaccines, we have therapeutics, we know a fair amount about this virus. The bad news is, is now we have to get the logistics together to be able to confront it head on. In the U.S., this outbreak has so far mostly affected men who have sex with men. And I have heard lots of gay men ask whether the response would be faster, stronger, better if it were not primarily affecting a marginalized group. Do you think there's anything to that? You know, we, we've seen over and over again marginalized groups more affected than other groups. And, and sometimes we see responses slower in, in that regard. You know, on, on the other hand, I would say I, I, I would guess that we know more about it because the, the group that it happens to be in happens to be a group that has incredible awareness about, um, about infections, has excellent advocacy, and are by and large a very good group at, at health-seeking behaviors. You know, this virus has been affecting people, marginalized, vulnerable people in sub-Saharan Africa for decades. And in particular, in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I've been working for the last two decades, working on monkeypox. Unless we really focus on attacking these disease threats at their source, we will continue to be chasing behind them. At this point, is it too late to contain this outbreak? Well, I, I think that every day that we aren't throwing the kitchen sink at this outbreak is a lost opportunity, a missed opportunity. Whether or not we can contain this virus really depends upon how well we are able to get those vaccines out and um, you know, making it as easy as possible for people to access care, to be able to get tested. And we're not there at this point. UCLA epidemiology professor Anne Ramoyne, thanks a lot. My pleasure. So, Ari, do you want to hear something that's going to make you feel really old? Does anyone ever want to hear something that makes them feel old? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the gentle minions? Uh, I've heard of gentlemen. I've heard of minions. I've <laughs> never heard of gentle minions. Okay, like minions, right? Like yeah, me, like me, the me. little yellow guys. Mm-hmm, that's them. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so for their new movie, Minions, The Rise of Gru, there are like these large groups of people, mostly teenage guys, who are suiting up in like dress suits and heading out to theaters to watch this movie. And they're calling themselves the Gentle Minions. I get it. Okay, got it. All right. And then they make these TikToks about it because... Because of, of course. course. Exactly. <laughs> and... I guess it's trend. It's like going viral all over the world. At first, we, we saw the TikToks from the American kids at first. So then we just decided to try it out in Singapore. Okay, that's 18-year-old Joshua Law from Singapore. And he appeared in one of these gentle minion videos that got like 1.3 million views on TikTok. Oh, no big deal. Just 1.3, huh? Yeah, 1. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, okay. whatever. And I guess this video is one of the tamer ones, supposedly. Uh, I, is this safe for public radio? <laughs> Well, it turns out like some of these kids, they get pretty rowdy, like they're yelling in the theater and they're even, they're even starting these mosh pits. And some theaters have gone as far as to ban wearing suits altogether. Ban wearing suits. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Why is this trend going viral? Well, you know, Ari, being NPR, we asked an expert about this. Oh, what a good idea. Overall, it's just everything is highly mimetic. That's why it's also you know kind of just taking off. Mimetic, like a meme? I think so. Okay, so that's Jennifer Greigel, an associate professor of communications at Syracuse University and an expert in social media and memes. And they say the rising popularity of social media influencer as a career path contributes to some of the absurdity that we are seeing online right now. We have all been geared towards more media. So, you know, again, this just happened to be where you could grow your influence. And I suppose free marketing for a movie that's doing pretty well at the box office. Yeah, apparently it's doing awesome at the box office. But Joshua Law, you know, that teenager we heard from earlier, mm -hmm. he actually wasn't a huge fan of the movie. Okay, if I'm going to be honest, I didn't like the movie. I thought it was mediocre at best. So why did he do the whole suit up and post on TikTok about it thing. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think we're just bored. There's not really anything funny. It's just yeah, nothing else better to do. I, I guess there are worse things bored teens can do. I can think of a few. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418. And coming up on All Things Considered, you'll hear about the new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Taking a look at business news and new efforts in the works to draw visitors back to Boston, the Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau is preparing to launch an advertising campaign this fall. It will promote the city as a destination for business and leisure travel, hotel occupancy in Boston, and the number of international travelers visiting Boston. Both have rebounded from the depths of the pandemic, but remain well below 2019 levels. On Wall Street, stocks closed down today. The Dow was down 162 points to close at 31,000. 175. The Nasdaq fell to 62 points to 11,372. The S&P 500 dropped 44 points, closing at 38.54. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine.
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. It's 85 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-60s tonight. A sunny Tuesday, highs in the upper 80s. Tomorrow night, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms. And then Wednesday, plenty of sunshine and a high around 90 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com NPR. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Donald Trump has been teasing he plans to run for president in 2024. The first time he ran for president, his fellow Republicans, well, they were not so welcoming. He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. We are not going to turn over the conservative movement to a con artist. Who is telling this man is a pathological liar. The man is utterly amoral. Morality does not exist for him. Well, those Republicans, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, Florida Senator Marco Rubio, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, and many others have since changed their tune. Trump can be a handful, but he is the most dominant figure in the Republican Party. Donald Trump is committed to cut taxes. Uh, the Republican candidate for president Donald J. Trump. Well, I, I, I am supporting the Republican nominee because I think Hillary Clinton is an absolute... That fealty, that blind loyalty is something that Atlantic writer Mark Leibovich says has been central to Trump's ability to hold on to power in the Republican Party. And it's also the subject of his new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Mark Leibovich joins me now. Hey there. Hey, Juana. So your book begins in the midst of the 2016 Republican presidential primary, but I want to focus on actually some of the later years that your book covers, the period surrounding the 2020 election and culminating with the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. Mm-hmm. You know, we are on the eve of new hearings by the congressional panel investigating those attacks. And I, I'm so curious, watching them with this book and your interviews for it in the background, what have you learned about the former president and his allies? Nothing good. What's astonishing to me, first of all, given everything we've been through with Donald Trump and continue to learn about Donald Trump, you know, he remains so wildly popular in the Republican Party, which is ultimately his superpower. The reason for this superpower is because none of the putative leaders of the Republican Party have pushed back on him at all. Kevin McCarthy, Lindsey Graham, even, you know, Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, who might be less vocal about it, have enabled him at every turn. And also with the hearings, You see the performance of Liz Cheney, Cassidy Hutchinson, some of these state election workers who come before them, and their very simple, brave testimony doing their patriotic work despite great risk to themselves, threats, intimidation. They do it anyway, and that stands in such sharp relief from the utter silence that continues from Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell on down. They are pretending that these hearings don't exist, and what this book does is it gives voice to all of them as they made this deal, made this calculation over the last five, six years. 
You brought up the names there of a number of prominent Republicans who you spoke to about the events of January 6th. And I have to say, I was particularly struck by what former House Speaker Paul Ryan told you about what that day was like for him. You wrote that he broke down into tears that day. Well, I mean, I think Paul Ryan is an interesting case. I mean, he clearly was not a big Trump fan and didn't do that much to hide it early on. But he worked very, very closely with Donald Trump because nothing was more important to Paul Ryan than, one, keeping his caucus happy, but two, tax reform. So fast forward to a few months ago, I sort of asked him about what it was like to see what he was there for the inception for and what it turned out to be at the insurrection. And he described just sitting there watching things unfold on January 6, 2021, and just sobbing and sobbing uncontrollably. And he said, look, I'm not a crier. And there I was just sobbing in front of the TV. I recognized a lot of my old security details, you know, sort of going mano a mano against the, the rioters on TV. I wrote them emails trying to buck them up. I didn't know what else to do. And you know, he looked so miserable at the prospect of what has happened and very despairing. And I finally said, do you yourself have any regrets? Were any of these tears of complicity? And as we're sitting here, you're still on the board of Fox News. I mean, you know, there is a very direct correlation between Donald Trump's continued viability in your party and Fox News. And he didn't want to go there. He didn't want to sort of explore the issues of complicity, uh, certainly on the record, that I wanted him to go to. But clearly the conflict was very much brought to bear in that conversation. There are also Republicans involved, like Cassidy Hutchinson, for example, who despite threats and enormous pressure testified before the January 6th committee Do you think something like that, and we may hear more from other similarly-minded Republicans soon, is something like that enough to turn the tide? That's a great question, Juan. I've thought a lot about that. Um, I think, you know, one of the gifts of the January 6th committee, I mean, obviously Republicans are saying, oh, it's a slanted committee, it's not legitimate, we're just ignoring it. Uh, Most of the testimony has come from Republicans. And the example of Cassidy Hutchinson, the example of the Ukraine resistance, the example of even you know the conservatives in the British Parliament. I mean, there are examples all around us of what courage looks like, simple courage, just simply telling the truth. And it has never been cast in sharper relief. And I have to think that what has been going on in these 1-6 committee meetings has been quite shaming, probably more so than Republicans realized, which might, I think, account for maybe why Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel, agreed to testify in a transcribed session, but also why I think others might come forward in the next few weeks, and hopefully they will. By and large, your book focuses on the class of elected Republicans, and I guess I'll call them professional Republicans, who are in many ways responsible for or have a hand in President Trump's rise. But at the same time, there are many voters out there who support the former president, his ideologies, the ways in which he walks through the world. So can you kind of talk about that interplay there? People liked what he was selling. Yeah. No, I mean, look, this is not an indictment of Republican voters necessarily. Our Trump voters, and I don't think anyone reading this will look to it to understand what are they thinking, what are their concerns, why do they still like Trump. My focus was on the people who have allowed Donald Trump to remain so popular, i.e., the putative leaders of the Republican Party in the various states, in the House, in the Senate, who continue to support him, who continue to live in such fear of him. And also, look, a lot of his cabinet. I mean, 
the, you know, up and down the ladder. I mean, they all very privately know exactly what this guy is all about. Does Mike Pence get credit for doing the bare minimum um, to actually stand before Donald Trump and actually say no at the very end? Sure, I give him some credit. But ultimately, if you're going to try to make a dent in Donald Trump's devotion and the cult of personality that he continues to enjoy within the Republican Party, you need to do more than the bare minimum. You have been a chronicler of Washington for a long time now, and you have known many of the people that you've, you're writing about here, the elected officials, the operatives, from top to bottom for some time. In writing this book, was there anything that you learned that surprised you? I mean, I think a lot of it, with some of them, has just been utter disappointment given the level of submission and the level of sort of soul-selling that so many people that have been sort of entrenched figures in D.C. for so long uh, have been engaging in. I have never seen, as a reporter in Washington covering politics for you know, almost a quarter century, a bigger gap between what elected Republican quote-unquote leaders will say to me privately versus what they will say on the record. The yawning gap between the public and private is, is just striking because they all know better. Mark Leibovich is the author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Juan. I appreciate it. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429 and ahead on All Things Considered, you'll get the story on new research that indicates pulse oximeters can give inaccurate results when used on people with darker skin. Also, you'll get the latest on the crisis in Sri Lanka. That and more coming up on All Things Considered. It is 85 degrees in Boston, mostly clear tonight, lows in the mid-60s, a sunny Tuesday, highs tomorrow in the upper 80s, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms tomorrow night, and then Wednesday should be sunny with a high around 90 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Picasso, a modern way to buy and co-own a second home. Picasso brings buyers together, then manages the home. Listings at pacaso.com. And MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. You talk energy, you think oil and gas, but that ain't all of it. Some people pay like thousand dollars to fourteen hundred yes. a month for to electricity. Pay electricity. Electricity. I'm Kai Rizdal. Gas and electricity in these rising prices times up in far north Alaska. Next time on Marketplace. That's Marketplace weeknights at six thirty on ninety point nine WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California. I'm Dwayne Brown. The Select Committee investigating last year's violent attack on the U.S. Capitol will be examining the role of extremist groups, such as the Proud Boys, in tomorrow's public hearing. Of particular interest, the group's possible connection to Trump advisors, 
Here's NPR's Claudia Grisales. These are the ties that the committee is really going to dig into in this hearing slated for tomorrow to look at the role of this mob of the extremist groups such as the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the connection, if any, to uh, Trump officials. And so that's going to be difficult. It's a difficult standard they're trying to reach. That's NPR's Claudia Grisales. The panel is trying to show Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election led directly to the violent insurrection on the Capitol. Ukraine's president has issued a call to liberate the country's southern regions from, quote, the Russian occupiers. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley tells us there are increasing signs a possible offensive is in the works. Defense forces of the south of Ukraine say, quote, we are ready for the liberation and are moving forward every day with the buildup of our artillery capacity. Also Monday, Vitaly Kim, who is the governor of the Mykolaiv region, spoke about it in one of his sardonic video updates. Hello, we are from Ukraine, he began using his now famous greeting. You see the latest news, he continued. The occupiers' storage depots are on fire. How bright they burn. Last week, the Ukrainian government called on citizens living in the South to leave by any means possible because of an upcoming operation to de-occupy the territories. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kriviri, Ukraine. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. No excuse, vote by mail will move forward in Massachusetts. That's after the state's highest court today denied a challenge from the state Republican Party. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more. The Mass GOP tried to block the state's new voting laws, arguing that permanently allowing mail-in balloting would lead to fraud. But the Supreme Judicial Court rejected that claim, clearing the way for Secretary of State Bill Galvin to mail out ballot applications ahead of the September 6th primary. Galvin says he's not worried about any appeal. We're proceeding immediately. I'm moving ahead. If they have no injunction against me, they, they better catch me if they can, because I, I'm going to make sure voters have the right to vote if they possibly can. Ballot applications have to go out in less than two weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. The Mass GOP did not immediately respond to a request for comment on the decision. The developers of Boston's first housing development for LGBTQ seniors say they won't be cowed by hate speech. This week, vandals defaced signs outside the construction site for the development in Hyde Park. WBUR's Sydney Bowles has more. More than 100 members and supporters of the LGBTQ community turned out yesterday to rally against hate speech following the vandalism of the Pride construction site. Gretchen Van Ness is the executive director of LGBTQ Senior Housing, the nonprofit that's spearheading the development. She tells Radio Boston she and her fellow organizers will not let the acts deter them. So whoever those cowards were who defaced our signs and threatened us, we outnumbered them by hundreds between our groundbreaking and all of the neighbors who stood with us yesterday. Van Ness says the Boston Police Department Civil Rights Division, which is investigating the vandalism, has yet to identify suspects. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles. 
Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts is introducing a bill today that would expand access to voting to young adults. Among other measures, the Youth Voting Rights Act would allow people in every state to pre-register to vote before turning 18. The bill also would require institutions of higher education to have polling places on campus and would require states to accept student IDs for voter verification purposes. Warren calls voting the heart of our democracy and says the U.S. must do everything possible possible to make sure young people can exercise their right to vote. In sports, the Red Sox are away against the Rays tonight. In the forecast, clear skies tonight, lows in the mid-60s, a sunny Tuesday, highs tomorrow in the upper 80s, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms tomorrow night, then Wednesday, sunny and high around 90. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. And from the Lemelson Foundation. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. President Biden has been hitting the reset button a lot lately. Today, he held a second ceremony celebrating the new bipartisan gun control bill. As NPR's Scott Detrow reports from the White House, the event gave Biden a chance to tout an accomplishment that got overshadowed, but also a chance to change his tone on a key issue. So the White House has music playing, and it's all the signs of a big bill signing with activists, with lawmakers, with allies, with all the people who worked to get this bill together. Of course, the strange thing here is that this bill was already signed into law. Good morning, everyone. When Biden signed this bill, it was quickly overtaken by other events. It was a Saturday morning, about 24 hours after the Supreme Court had overturned Roe v. Wade, and just before Biden flew to Europe for a major NATO summit. I've been at this work for a long, long time, and I know how hard it is, and I know what it takes to get it done. Today, Biden gave it another go. Will we match thoughts and prayers with action? I say yes, and that's what we're doing here today. But even as Biden praised the new law, the first bipartisan gun law in a generation, he said it wasn't enough. Biden called for more, including a new federal assault weapons ban. That's what we owe those families in Buffalo, where a grocery store became a killing field. It's what we owe those families in Uvalde, where an elementary school became a killing field. That's what those families in Highland Park, where on July 4th, a parade became a killing field. The more forceful message was in part a response to criticism Biden took after the July 4th mass shootings in Highland Park, Illinois. Biden only made a glancing mention of it that day and said, quote, things will get better still because of the new law and other efforts. Democrats wanted more passion, more anger from Biden. Democratic strategist Joel Payne says it's tough since the president ran on restoring normalcy and governing only to preside over crisis after crisis. And you have a president who his his sales pitch to the country was, I'm going to get out the way at a moment where the people who are part of his coalition want him to be front and center. On Roe v. Wade, Democrats were also frustrated with Biden's first response. Brief formal remarks and vague executive promises. It's not hyperbole to suggest a very solemn moment. 
Over the next two weeks, Biden called for a change to filibuster rules and issued more specific orders. Payne says it was a mistake to draw the response out. That would have been received so much differently. But it feels like you're flat-footed because it's being delivered in a staggered um, fashion over the course of 10 to 14 days. On Friday, Biden hit reset, delivering much more forceful remarks. Today, the same on guns. And in a moment where polls show Democratic frustration with Biden, it was clear the event was an attempt to boost his image, too. Here's Vice President Harris. We would not be here were it not for the vision, the courage, the unwavering determination of one particular individual, Joe Biden. And the White House made sure to pack the audience with allies from all corners of the party, including Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, who many Biden critics have held up as an example of a Democrat who's better meeting the tone of the current political moment. Still, the event revealed the tensions Biden faces won't go away anytime soon. As he hailed the new gun law, an invited guest stood up and heckled him, the parent of a student killed in Parkland. He told the president the new law doesn't do enough to save more lives. Scott Detrow, NPR News, the White House. Over the last two years, the pulse oximeter has become a crucial tool for tracking the health of COVID patients. The small device clips onto a finger and measures the amount of oxygen in a patient's blood. Well, study out today adds to a growing body of research that shows the device can be inaccurate when measuring oxygen levels in people with dark skin tones. Craig Lamolt of member station GBH reports. Dr. Sandra Luby-Gordon found herself on the phone last year with a triage nurse at a Florida hospital. Luby Gordon, who's a physician at Boston Medical Center, was arguing that her own son, who was very sick with COVID, shouldn't be sent home from the hospital. I said, um, but our standards, I said, I really believe he needs to be admitted. Well, yeah, he is looking pretty short of breath, but his oxygen levels are good. The nurse was basing that on what the pulse oximeter clipped to his finger was reading. But as a nervous parent, she'd been talking with her physician colleagues, and one of them reminded her of research showing the pulse oximeter tends to be inaccurate in people with dark skin tones. So I said, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. And I said, on top of that, my son is, <laughs> this sounds strange, but very dark, very dark complexion. When he was given a more invasive test for measuring blood oxygen, it showed his levels were actually dangerously low. Her son was admitted and treated and ultimately recovered from COVID. But Luby Gordon says most other patients in that situation don't know about this. I have to be completely honest. I wasn't fully aware that there could be such a difference. Research published recently by scientists at Johns Hopkins University showed inaccurate results from pulse oximeters resulted in a failure to identify Black and Hispanic patients who were in need of COVID therapies. And a new paper in the journal JAMA Internal Medicine looked at other consequences of those inaccurate readings. It examined pre-pandemic data on how much supplemental oxygen patients of color receive. We were fooled by the pulse oximeter. Leo Anthony Selly of MIT is the paper's author. We were given the false impression that the patients were okay. And what we showed in this study is that we were giving them less oxygen than they needed. People of color have experienced higher rates of hospitalization and death from COVID-19 than white populations, according to the CDC. Selly says he can't say what impact pulse oximeters have had on that, but he says he's confident it's played a role. Selly says the issue points to a larger problem with how medical devices are studied and approved. The way we evaluate medical products is primarily based on 
trials that involve primarily white individuals. Several manufacturers of the devices dispute studies showing racial disparities. But scientists and engineers are working on new technologies that could revolutionize pulse oximeters in a way that would conquer the problem. Yes, so this is, um, this is our device. Um, At Tufts University, Associate Professor Valencia Kumsen filed a patent in May on a new version of the pulse oximeter. She explains pulse oximeters measure a patient's oxygen level by shooting light into their finger and measuring how much of that light is absorbed by oxygenated hemoglobin. The inaccuracy in dark-skinned people comes from the fact that melanin, which makes skin darker, also absorbs light. Kumsen says her device gets around that issue by measuring a person's skin tone. So that we can send more light if there's a higher level of melanin uh, present so that melanin doesn't become a confounding factor that obscures our results. Kumsen is black and says the story of the pulse oximeter and efforts now to redesign it point to the need for greater diversity in engineering and medicine. We're shaped by our environment and, and who we are and our identity, and that informs what type of research goes on. It's, it's, it's the people who do research who decide what research is done. Kumsen and other scientists have been pushing the FDA to take steps to address the problem. Last winter, the agency issued a warning that skin pigmentation and other factors could impact pulse oximeter results. Now the agency says it'll bring together expert advisors later this year to discuss the issue and what should be done to ensure the devices are accurate for everyone. For NPR News, I'm Craig Lamolt in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Some people struggling to conceive worry that the battle over abortion could eventually put treatments like in vitro fertilization in jeopardy. That's as some anti-abortion activists in states like Michigan, Texas, and Louisiana attempt to make the argument that life begins at conception. Michelle Jokish-Polo of member station WKAR in East Lansing reports. During IVF, eggs are collected from ovaries and fertilized by sperm in a lab to create as many viable embryos as possible. Those embryos are then tested to check for viability and anomalies and are then transferred to a uterus, discarded or frozen in a lab to be used at a future date. Now, that process may be in jeopardy for hundreds of thousands who are relying on IVF to try to conceive in states with abortion bans in place. Judith Dar specializes in reproductive health law at the University of Northern Kentucky. She says when the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe Wade made a reference to unborn humans, the issue of IVF was indirectly raised. If the legislature does view the unborn human life at its earliest moments as something worthy of protection over Uh, other interests, including the interest of patients and forming their families, then laws could move forward that are restrictive on the very processes that are very routine to in vitro fertilization. After battling with infertility for several years, Melissa, who asked us to use only her first name for privacy reasons, says she finally saw a glimmer of hope through IVF. But when the ruling came down, she began to get concerned. I'm sitting here desperate for babies. Desperate. And this can seriously impact whether I can grow my family, whether I can afford to, whether I want to risk it 
In Michigan, a 1931 abortion ban is temporarily paused as the courts wait to decide if abortion will be banned in most cases. That law could have those in IVF clinics facing criminal charges if they discard embryos or Melissa could be forced to try to get pregnant in a medically unsafe way. So if the states pass something that says life starts at conception, is the clinic going to have to pivot what they do to stay in that language? Are they going to be able to make more than one embryo at a time? Are frozen embryos ever going to be allowed to be discarded? Barb Kulura heads the group Resolve, the National Infertility Association. She says concerns like these are plaguing providers in states like Louisiana, Georgia, and Texas with strict abortion bans. So there is definitely fear amongst those personnel that something that they may do in the laboratory, something that's uh, inadvertent, or even if somebody says, look, you can't freeze embryos, and how will they be able to do their work? Because Michigan's 1931 abortion ban is open to interpretation, Michigan State University ethicist Sean Valles fears it could widen the gap in access to care. And so both the ability to grow a family or to delay growing a family, those will both become more and more the prerogative of people who have money and connections and racial privilege. While a temporary pause on the state's abortion ban is in place, Melissa and her husband are anxiously hoping Michigan courts make a decision in favor of abortion rights so that they can continue to grow their family. Across the country, others relying on IVF to start or grow their families are also anxiously watching what their states do. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Jokishpolo. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448 and ahead on All Things Considered, you'll hear that as Russia has cracked down on anti-war speech, the country's music scene has faced challenges, including canceled concerts, lawsuits, and cyberbullying. That and more coming up on All Things Considered. Tomorrow afternoon at 1, the January 6th committee holds its next hearing. It will center on ties between the Trump administration and right-wing extremist groups, including the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. NPR's live coverage and analysis begins tomorrow afternoon at 1 o'clock here on WBUR and WBUR.org. It is 85 degrees in Boston, sunny tomorrow, highs in the upper 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And Direct Tire and Auto Service. A dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. The suspect of the Highland Park shooting came out of internet communities that are organized around a set of aesthetics and a set of community dynamics. My guess is that we're going to continue to see mass shootings coming out of the space because it is a mass shooting creation machine. Deeply nihilistic and deliberately detached from reality. What and who form these online subcultures? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Sri Lanka's president is still in hiding. Gatabaya Rajapaksa hasn't been seen in public since he was driven out of office over the weekend. President Rajapaksa has agreed to step down by Wednesday, and protesters who descended on his palace have insisted they will occupy the building until he and other government officials have gone for good, as Raksha Kumar reports. The sound of the fury. Thousands descended on the presidential and prime ministerial residences at the weekend, as frustration over the government's economic mismanagement spilled over into anger. The prime minister's residence was set on fire. The mood changed to one of festivity. People swam in the president's pool, worked out in the gym, and marveled at the expensive clothing. This man is examining a $179 price tag on a shirt found in the president's residence. But outside, the reality played on. The country is officially bankrupt. Years of mismanagement by the Rajapaksha government has taken its toll. It's the poorest of the poor that suffers a lot. Human rights activist Shreen Saroor says fuel and food prices are at an all-time high. In three months, we have not had gas supply properly. We don't have electricity, so it becomes very difficult to cook. Umesh Murumudalai is a lecturer of economics at the University of Colombo. He says the only way to restore confidence is to make a deal with the International Monetary Fund. So the soon we get that, we can also get other support because other countries are not going to support up until we finalize an IMF agreement. But the question is, while there is a power vacuum, who do the IMF negotiate with? In a video statement released Monday, the Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe said he would stay on until a new government was in place. The president himself has still not been seen. So for now, the protesters continue to occupy the palace, play the piano, lie on the beds, take selfies. And Sri Lanka waits for a new government, for fuel to return to the pumps, food on the table, an end to the crisis. For NPR News, I'm Raksha Kumar in Mumbai. Cancelled concerts, lawsuits, existential turmoil. As Russia has cracked down on anti-war speech, the country's music scene has seen this play out at an especially high pitch. And Pierre Zelina Selyuk reports. The day I talked to Manisha Sangin, she's supposed to be a top headliner at a music festival in Russia's second city, St. Petersburg. Instead, she searches for a quiet spot outside a shelter housing Ukrainian refugees. <laughs> She's dancing. <laughs> the festival had abruptly removed Manisha from the lineup. It was her second of three concerts to get canceled under pressure from authorities. A vast cyberbullying campaign had declared her an anti-Russian traitor. Because of my words, because of my position. In February, when Russian troops attacked Ukraine, Manisha posted her opposition on social media, calling it a fratricidal conflict against the will of the people. Her new song, soldier, soldier. planned months earlier, came out with eerie timing. When your war is over, who will wait for you? Stop 
for half her own life, Manija herself was a refugee of a civil war in Tajikistan, fleeing as a child. And it is heinous. I am 31, and I still remember, and at our table we always say this, let there be peace. Except new Russian laws have criminalized anti-war statements, sometimes even the word war, especially from influential figures. Many Russian artists did line up in support of what the Kremlin calls its special military operation in Ukraine. Plenty go on in silence, afraid or asserting their art to be outside of geopolitics. Some protest and keep performing, while others get blacklisted and taken off air. Rock music legend Yuri Shevchuk faced prosecution after a video from his concert in May went viral. All this death for what? Some Napoleonic plans of our latest Caesar? Shevchuk went on. Homeland, he said, is not the president's behind that has to be constantly kissed. His legal case was dismissed, but his band Dedete soon suspended concerts. Another big rocker, Zimfira, re-released an old track called Don't Shoot, with video showing destroyed Ukrainian towns. Don't be silent, the song urges. Zimfira fled Russia in the spring exodus of dissenters and joined other Russians playing concerts for Ukraine aid. Indie artist Kate Shilonosova recorded a charity album for a group that helps Ukrainians evacuate. She performs as Kate N.V., describing her sound as pop that's tender with a sprinkling of weird. Before the war, she had planned some trips to the U.S. for a music partnership. Now she's in Brooklyn, feeling existentially adrift. I'm a bit lost right now. I feel like anything I might do is insufficient and bad. To characterize my current state, I generally don't understand anything, really just nothing. She found herself unable to listen to music, putting on headphones and absorbing silence. Her life plans only extend two months out. Kate will return to Moscow in the fall with nowhere to live, no idea what she'll do or who'll even be there. Beyond that, she says, the future is a gaping emptiness. One thing still gives Kate energy, writing music. But she says she feels like a depleted car battery. Summoning mental strength requires a jump start. And once you stop running, it's all over. Every day you're kind of thinking, what's the point of my life? What's the point of it all? What's the point of me making music? So I literally question my occupation every day. Back in Moscow, Manija has been pouring her focus into her refugee support foundation. One big reason, she says, she does not think about leaving Russia. The day her second concert got canceled, she wrote new songs. You have fragile shoulders but a strong back, she wrote, because you're not alone. Manija says she and other artists have been meeting up to sit in silence or ask each other what to do, a bit like children, she says, approaching their instruments for the first time. Alina Salyuk, NPR News.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Leslie Manville plays a 1950s housekeeper who discovers the dress of her dreams and transforms the house of Dior. In theaters Friday. Tickets available now. And from Culligan Water, since 1939, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 85 degrees coming up on 5 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. You'll hear that as Russia continues its war in Ukraine, its neighbor to the east, Japan, is examining its security and defense policy. Mostly clear tonight, lows in the mid-60s, sunny tomorrow, highs in the upper 80s. Tomorrow night, a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Wednesday, sunny and a high around 90. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mass shootings account for a small fraction of U.S. gun deaths, but they get a lot of attention from the media and lawmakers. Far too often policy conversations are driven by mass shootings. If we focus only on those, we might miss other opportunities for intervention. It's Monday, July 11th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody, in for Lisa Mullins. You'll hear about the turmoil in Miami's Cuban-American community and among some Republican officials over the proposed sale of two Spanish-language radio stations to a Latina-owned network backed by George Soros. You'll get a conversation about challenges facing low-income countries as they tackle continued COVID surges, a lack of monkeypox vaccines, and climate disasters. And the pandemic has disrupted weddings. Yesterday in New York City, more than 500 couples got a chance for a do-over at Lincoln Center. It's 501 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal judge is denying former Trump advisor Steve Bannon's latest efforts to delay his trial on charges of criminal contempt of Congress. That means Bannon's trial will go ahead as scheduled next week in federal court in Washington. Here's NPR's Ryan Lucas. Bannon was indicted in November for refusing to comply with the subpoena issued by the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. His trial is scheduled to start next week, but speculation grew over the weekend that it could be delayed after Bannon's lawyer said he is now willing to testify before the House panel. At a pretrial hearing in federal court in Washington, D.C., Judge Carl Nichols, a Trump appointee, heard arguments from both sides on several motions and in the end ruled in the Justice Department's favor. He said concerns about media coverage potentially prejudicing the jury pool can be addressed in jury selection, and he sees no reason to postpone the trial. 
Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. U.S. hospitalizations from COVID-19 are up about 5% from a week ago. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports at the same time another Omicron subvariant is now dominating. About 31,000 people are in the hospital with COVID around the country, and reinfections appear to be on the rise, too. Bob Wachter, a physician at UC San Francisco, says BA5 is highly transmissible. Not only is it more infectious, but your prior immunity doesn't count for as much as it used to. In terms of fighting off infection, experts say it's reassuring that deaths remain low as vaccines continue to protect against serious illness and death. The New York Health Department is recommending people mask up in public settings. Allison Aubrey. NPR News. Tehran is now informed the UN's nuclear watchdog agency it is enriching uranium to 20% purity in an underground facility. As according to state-run TV, NPR's Peter Kenyon reports. Nuclear experts say fuel for a nuclear weapon is enriched to around 90% purity, but once you reach 20%, going the rest of the way happens more quickly. Besides, the International Atomic Energy Agency says Iran already has a stockpile of 60% enriched fuel. Iran says it's using advanced IR-6 centrifuges at Fordo, a nuclear enrichment plant that was supposed to become a research and development facility under the 2015 agreement between Iran and six world powers. The news comes as nuclear talks have been stalled for months, with the U.S. envoy describing the most recent talks in Doha as, quote, more than a little bit of a wasted occasion. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Shares of the social media company Twitter are down substantially on the first day of trading, following word that billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk intends to abandon his $44 billion bid to buy the company. Twitter's vowed to challenge Musk in court. Twitter shares fell more than 11% today. The Dow was down 164 points on Wall Street. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts House Democrats want to give some residents a break on their taxes. Today, they unveiled a plan to make permanent changes to the tax code in response to rising consumer prices. The plan would allow for larger tax credits for seniors, renters, and parents. It also would make the estate tax apply to fewer individuals. The changes are included in a nearly $4 billion economic development bill that would use borrowing state surplus dollars and federal pandemic relief money. A new survey by the Massachusetts Hospital Association finds the current nurse vacancy rate at hospitals in the state is 13.6 percent. That is more than double the vacancy rate in 2019 before the pandemic. Reasons for the vacancies include burnout and an aging workforce. The association says more than 5,100 nurses would need to be hired to fill the void. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey has joined a nationwide coalition backing a new federal rule to regulate so-called ghost guns. Those are untraceable firearms that lack serial numbers or other identifying marks. The new rule makes it easier for law enforcement officials to trace self-made guns. It does so by classifying as firearms the kits used to make ghost guns and partially complete guns. The rule is expected to take effect later this year. Summer concerts in Boston's neighborhood parks are back. The free Park Arts Music Series starts tonight in Dorchester. Boston Parks and Recreation Commissioner Ryan Wood says the free concerts offer an affordable night out. As costs are going up with gas prices and groceries, it's nice to have some free programming in your local neighborhood that you can walk to and you can enjoy as a family at no cost. 
The 10 concerts are spread out across the city's neighborhoods and include a mix of rock, jazz, and reggae. In sports tonight, the Red Sox are away against the Rays. It is 83 degrees in Boston, mostly clear tonight, lows in the mid-60s. A sunny Tuesday, highs tomorrow reaching the upper 80s. A chance of some showers and thunderstorms tomorrow night. Then Wednesday, once again, sunny, highs in the upper 80s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers with a story about gun violence in all its forms, including suicide. It may not be appropriate for everyone, so please do take care. It starts with a shooting a week ago, not the one you've heard about, the mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois. This one was a few hours away in Peoria. Quentin Scott was shot and killed around 3.30 a.m. on July 4th. He was 19 years old. I don't really don't know how to feel, except for I feel lost. Marcellus Somerville runs a community organization called Friendship House in Peoria. Quentin Scott was in a career development program there, working toward becoming a carpenter. Somerville called him Q and said he was always around. I mean, it's hard to walk the halls in the building, not yell out Q and come here, do this. The staff at Friendship House helped Scott work his way through a self-paced high school diploma program. He just graduated in April. We gave him, like, this award. Um, It's crazy. His butt didn't even take it home, but... I have it here in my office. It says, dream, believe, achieve, and then he was supposed to put his diploma in there. For every mass shooting, there are scores of deaths like Quentin Scott's, lives taken one by one, each just as devastating to the people around the victim. Like Paula Volker in Casper, Wyoming. Her July 4th started with a panic attack. I was actually kind of surprised. I woke up with a nightmare. Last Monday marked nine years since her husband, Dale, shot and killed himself. He was an athlete and had just had a couple of back surgeries that left him in pain, unable to do the physical activities he loved. One day, he didn't come home from work. I think it was a snap decision that morning. I truly believe if there wouldn't have been a gun in the home that this wouldn't have happened. Meaningfully reducing gun deaths in the U.S. will mean preventing deaths like Dale Volker's in Casper and Quentin Scott's in Peoria. Cassandra Crafasi studies gun violence at Johns Hopkins University. Far too often policy conversations are driven by mass shootings, and that that doesn't mean that we shouldn't make policies to address them. But if we focus only on those, we might miss other opportunities for intervention. There were 45,000 gun deaths in the U.S. in 2020, the most recent year with available data. When you start pulling that number apart, some troubling trends jump out. One in every 1,000 black men and boys between the ages of 15 and 34 was shot and killed in 2020, according to a Johns Hopkins analysis. That is 21 times the rate of their white counterparts. Living under that threat weighs on a person. That's what Ernest Willingham told a U.S. Senate committee last month. Growing up in Chicago, it has become the norm to hear that someone, primarily a young person, has been shot and killed. Therefore, we cherish every possible accomplishment because we attended more funerals than weddings. Willingham is 19 years old, a junior at Northeastern University in Boston. And he told the senators he'd seen his brother, father, cousin, and best friend become victims of gun violence. When we talked to Willingham, 
He told us that sense of danger shaped the way his grandmother raised him. I always wondered why didn't my grandmother let me go to certain places or why wasn't I allowed to play outside with certain kids after a certain time. You know, I wasn't a bad kid. I always got good grades in school and I wondered, was this a punishment growing up? Was I doing something wrong? But it turns out that she was just in fear that, you know, I would go and that something would happen as she had seen with like her other grandkids. That Senate hearing where Ernest Willingham testified was June 15th. In just the few weeks since then, he's been touched by gun violence again, twice. He says his niece was shot in her own home. She survived, but he says the family has left their house out of fear of another attack. And his friend, Eric Brown, was shot too. When I was growing up, I was like, I hope I never get shot. That's something that I never want to experience. So I made sure that I avoid every way possible to not get shot. Brown told us he made sure to have good grades and test scores. And like Willingham, he went out of state to the University of Wisconsin, in part to escape gun violence in Chicago. I don't have to, like, lean towards the streets and be involved in nonsense that I don't see myself being a part of. I never thought I was going to be a victim of gun violence. Brown is back in the area this summer for an internship. He and a couple of high school friends stopped by a vegan restaurant for takeout in a neighborhood he didn't know well. They ordered, then went back to the car to wait for their food. Moments later, there was shots being fired towards my vehicle. And all I can remember during that time is just, like, saying in my head, like, when is this going to be over? When is this going to be over? Like, just praying that it's going to be over and that I don't get hit nowhere, that it will just, like, permanently make me disabled or, like, even kill me. By the time the shooter drove off, Eric Brown had been shot in the leg and one of his friends in her hand. They rushed to a nearby hospital where he said he felt discriminated against. I felt like I was getting profiled while being a victim of gun violence while I was in the hospital as well. I was just thinking, like, just because you are, I would say, a Caucasian, that don't mean this cannot happen to you. And a lot of people don't understand that, like, everyone that gets shot isn't a person that's condoning, like, negative behavior. Mm. Eric, I I hope you're okay. I hope that your friend who you said was shot in your car, are you, are you doing all right? Are you both okay? Uh, yes, we both are doing much better. You know, um, oftentimes when there are shootings in this country and we have conversations about them publicly, it's about big, high-profile mass shootings like what we saw in Highland Park, like what we saw in Uvalde in Buffalo, New York. And there's a lot of public outrage, but that's not the kind of gun violence that the three of us are talking about, that you've experienced or seen friends and family members experience. Why do you think that type of gun violence does not get the same level of attention? I feel like because it's affecting a different crowd, because most of like the school shootings and mass shootings that are happening at parades, and things of that nature are happening to people from different demographic than me and Ernest. I have a very, very similar perspective on it. You know, and when we think about the Highland Park shooting, and my, you know, my heart definitely goes to those families and I'm still praying for them. But, you know, my concern is you have mass shootings that take place in areas of Chicago, like North Lawndale, like West Garfield Park. And I'm talking about four and five people that are being shot at one time. 
and you don't see one news channel. And you begin to wonder, well, what's the difference between those pe young people that are being shot and killed in Inglewood, in North Lawndale, as opposed to those ones that were shot in Highland Park? And also to add on to what Ernest said, look how quickly it took for them to find a shooter that did the shooting in Highland Park compared to any shooting that happened in Chicago. It just shows the amount of resources and time they put into different situations that happen to different types of people. Another group of people who are lost in the discussion over gun violence, those who die by suicide. More than half of gun deaths are suicides. Matthew Miller studies the relationship between guns and suicide mortality at Northeastern University. He says most people don't know that owning a gun increases your risk of death by suicide three or fourfold. It's not that gun owners are inherently more suicidal. The gun itself changes what would very often be sort of non-lethal suicide attempts into lethal suicide attempts because with guns, you rarely get a second chance, whereas with many other commonly used methods, you do. Dorothy Paw's life has been touched by suicide twice. First, when she was a young girl. Her father had lost his job. He told my mother one day that she should know where the life insurance policies were kept and the will, and he went out and he bought a handgun. Of course, she was alarmed, and she called our priest and his best friend, and they both came and spoke to him. But what they didn't do was take the handgun when they left. And the next day, he told my mom to take us to the swimming pool, which was a rare treat. And we were splashing and playing Marco Polo when they announced my mother's name over the loudspeaker and drove us to the hospital to tell us that our dad was dead. As I understand, many years later in 2012, your son, who was an adult, died by suicide, and he also used a gun. And I know that since his death, you have talked about legislation to try to prevent gun suicides like the ones that your family has experienced. Um, how did that happen? Tell us about that. So after Peter died... Um, was Peter your son? Yes. And a year or so passed where I was able to function. I just studied what worked to prevent suicides. And what I learned was that the single most effective thing an individual can do if someone is struggling is reach out to them and ask them if they're thinking of suicide. And then if they have access to a firearm, get it away out of the house. However, you have to do it. And what I decided to do was to ask my state delegate in Maryland to introduce an extreme risk protective order law, commonly called red flag laws. That bill became law in Maryland in 2018. She says she wants to see a federal red flag law. That's why, as hard as it is to keep telling the story of her loss, Dorothy Paw keeps going. I mean, sometimes I think I can't talk about it anymore, but after I get rested up, I have to talk again. <laughs> because without voices like hers and Ernest Willingham's and Eric Brown's, we're only hearing part of the story about gun violence in America. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, 
call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or contact the Crisis Text Line. Text HELLO to 741-741. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and ahead on All Things Considered, climate change is posing challenges to vineyards in Turkey, endangering the future of an ancient wine industry. In business news, AAA says in Massachusetts, the statewide average for a gallon of gas is now about $4.75. It's down about 10 cents from last week. AAA says the price dropped even though demand for gasoline from drivers has risen because of summer travel. The organization says it appears the decline is a result of falling oil prices. On Wall Street, stocks closed down today. The Dow was down 164 points to close at 31,173. The Nasdaq fell 262 points to 11,372. The S&P 500 dropped 44 points, closing at 3854. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 630. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. And Porter Square Books and BU's Center for Anti-Racist Research presenting W. Kamau Bell and Kate Schatz on August 5th. Tickets at PorterSquareBooks.com. It is 83 degrees in Boston. In the forecast, you can expect mostly clear skies tonight with lows in the mid-60s. A sunny Tuesday, tomorrow's temperatures in the upper 80s. Tomorrow night, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms. Then Wednesday, once again, sunshine and highs in the upper 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, with the 2023 Subaru Crosstrek, an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and an available 182-horsepower engine. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Tokyo, mourners are paying their respects to former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was killed by a lone gunman on Friday. As Japan's longest-serving leader, Abe advocated for more robust defense policies. As NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam reports from Tokyo, those policies have recently taken on more importance in Japan. Low metal barricades are dragged aside as a big black sedan enters Japan's Ministry of Defense. The compound is in a busy part of Tokyo. It's ringed by high-rise apartments and office buildings. Cars roar by its main entrance. Security is surprisingly light. You'd think there's nothing to worry about. But climb the steps to the main grounds and you get a different perspective. Nestled behind a stand of cherry trees sits two Patriot missile batteries, ready to shoot down any incoming missiles. Japan's in an increasingly fraught neighborhood. North Korea, China 
and Russia, which is recently causing a lot of concern. I think the Russian aggression against Ukraine showed something that many Japanese didn't imagine. And this was an aggression by a very powerful state against its neighbor. Chikako Ueki is a professor of Asia-Pacific Studies at Waseda University in Tokyo. She says the Ukraine war is forcing many people in Japan to examine their security and defense policy. People in Japan are asking, uh, is China another Russia? Is Japan another Ukraine? Or is Taiwan another Ukraine? Abe understood Japan's vulnerability and long pushed but failed to amend a particular clause of the country's pacifist constitution. Article 9 says Japan cannot use war as a means of settling international disputes. But Abe felt that limited Japan's ability to defend itself. Ministry of Defense spokesman Takeshi Ishikawa says they're already charting a steady uptick in Chinese military activity. China is beefing up its military capability at high speed, and they're now deploying highly technical equipment in their territory. In order to increase our deterrence power, we need to strengthen the alliance between Japan and the U.S. But the Japanese don't want to be reliant entirely on the U.S., there are calls by the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, for Japan to be more proactive, creating counter-strike capabilities and boosting defense spending. Waseda University's Ueki again. The public seems to be more in support, whereas they were opposed previously. But I think it's a fairly limited offensive capability that Japan is talking about. But Ueki says that engagement with China is still important. It is, after all, a major trading partner. Japan is due to unveil a new national security strategy later this year, which could address changes to Article 9. Hitoshi Tanaka, with the Japan Research Institute in Tokyo, said there have been some amendments to that clause over the years. For example, in 2004, Japan deployed its self-defense forces to Iraq to help with reconstruction. But Tanaka says there needs to be careful consideration before any dramatic changes. I'm not disagreeing to have a debate on the change of the constitution, but you just don't do it while uh, the atmosphere is quite explosive today. <laughs> Ukraine, Russia, China and sort of thing. Let's be quiet. Let's be cold-headed. If Japan does decide to amend the country's pacifist constitution later this year, It'll be one step closer to securing the late Prime Minister Abe's legacy. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Tokyo. Two radio stations are for sale in Miami, and normally a transaction like this gets little attention. But this potential sale has members of the Cuban-American community and Republican officials upset. It boils down to politics, charges of disinformation, and censorship. And as NPR's Greg Allen reports from Miami, the sale is backed by financier George Soros. Televisa Univision is selling 18 radio stations in 10 markets to a newly formed company, the Latino Media Network. The ones that have gotten the attention, though, are two AM stations in Miami, WQBA and WAQI, known as Radio Mambi. El tema es Cuba. La meta es su libertad. 
The stations broadcast in Spanish. For decades, they've been institutions in South Florida's Cuban-American exile community. Although the focus is on Cuba, the topics vary. But especially on Radio Mambi, the talk radio hosts and their callers favor conservative, sometimes extreme positions. The founders of Latino Media Network say they don't intend to change, quote, the spirit or the character of the station. But in a statement, they also say they believe in journalistic integrity. Most alarming to conservative critics of the sale, LMN is backed by a fund affiliated with George Soros, a billionaire and philanthropist known for backing progressive causes. At a news conference, Sylvia Ariando with the Assembly of the Cuban Resistance said she believes the new owners have a progressive agenda and will stifle conservative voices now on the air. We will resist any attempt to censor the voices of this community that are represented by these radio stations. Although Democrats had been making inroads, in recent years, Miami's Cuban-American community has doubled down on its support for Republicans with the election of Donald Trump. Radio Mambi and other Spanish-language stations have been key in helping Republican candidates reach Cuban-American voters. Florida Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott are among the Republicans who sent a letter to the FCC asking it to scrutinize the sale. Scott said he believes the deal is about politics, an effort by activists to undercut Republicans, including Rubio, who's up for re-election in November. This is not a business transaction. It's a transaction to try to make sure Marco doesn't win his race. And the congressmen and congresswomen here at Miami don't win their races. Latino Media Network's founders have worked for Democratic organizations, one in the Obama White House. They didn't make themselves available for an interview. In a statement, they say they are committed to freedom of expression and have asked the leading talk show hosts at the stations to stay once the sale is approved, although one host has since resigned. The sale comes as there are rising concerns about the growth of disinformation in Spanish-language media. Earlier this year, Debbie McCarcel Powell testified at a congressional hearing on the topic. She's a former Democratic member of Congress from Miami who lost her seat two years ago. She says falsehood spread on talk radio played a role in that upset. When people are only listening to one source of information repeatedly, they start believing the lies that they're hearing. Uh, I think it absolutely influenced the outcome not only of my election, but of other elections as well. McCarcel Powell isn't involved with the Latino media network, but she believes the sale may begin to counter the spread of disinformation on Spanish-language talk radio that, amplified by social media, has led to a radicalization of politics. And when you hear blatant lies about coronavirus, uh, about vaccines, not only the hosts, but also the coordinated callers who go on rants on uh, making sure that people buy their ammunition and get their guns and are ready to fight against the government. If the FCC approves the sale of the Miami stations and the 16 others across the nation, Latino Media Network says the deal will be finalized next year. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. The Postal Service needs new trucks, and it's getting them. 165,000 new trucks are on their way, 20% of which will be electric. But multiple states and federal agencies say they should bring that percentage way up and protect the public from gas-guzzling polluters. That story tomorrow on All Things Considered. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529 and coming up on All Things Considered, Dr. Atul Gawande of USAID discusses the challenges facing low-income countries as they tackle COVID surges, a lack of monkeypox vaccines, and climate disasters.
It is 83 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-60s tonight, tomorrow a sunny Tuesday, with highs in the upper 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com slash gig. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden admits more has to be done as he hailed a new federal law today aimed at reducing gun violence. Biden, speaking from the White House, said the nation is still awash in weapons of war. This legislation is real progress, but more has to be done. The provision of this new legislation is going to save lives and is proof that today's politics, we can come together on a bipartisan basis to, get, basis to get important things done, even on an issue as tough as guns. The law was passed after a spate of mass shootings in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas, but the new gun law has already been overshadowed by the Independence Day shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, where seven people were killed by a gunman who legally purchased his firearms, providing another reminder of the limitations of the new law. UPS will no longer transport components used to make so-called ghost guns. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Jim Burris has more. The Atlanta-based shipping giant has updated its policies to specifically ban firearms and firearm components without a serial number. Such parts are largely untraceable and often find their way into gun kits used to build homemade assault-style weapons. Gun industry suppliers report UPS is already confiscating shipments and suspending their accounts. Whether the move has widespread impact largely depends on whether competitors FedEx and the U.S. Postal Service follow suit. A new federal rule requiring that gun components carry a serial number takes effect next month. For NPR News, I'm Jim Burris in Atlanta. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street today. Tech stocks led the decline, along with shares of Twitter, as a busy week of corporate earnings reports get started. The Dow was down half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court says mail-in voting does not violate the state's constitution. Today, the court rejected the attempt by the Massachusetts Republican Party to block the state's plan to make mail-in ballots a permanent voting option. The state GOP argued that part of the Votes Act, which Governor Baker signed into law last month, violates the state's constitution. They also said it could lead to voter fraud. Mail-in voting has been allowed for the last two years because of the pandemic. Nantucket police and fire and the state's fire marshal say an improperly discarded cigarette 
is the likely cause of a fire that destroyed an historic inn. Investigators say the fire at the Veranda House and two nearby buildings in downtown Nantucket broke out Saturday beneath the front porch of the inn. The fire marshal says this serves as a reminder that cigarette butts should never be tossed into mulch. Massachusetts House Democrats have released a plan to offer tax relief to some Massachusetts residents. WBUR's Jonathan Kane reports they're proposing permanent changes to the state's tax code. If the plan is approved, seniors, parents, and renters would be eligible for higher tax credits. The estate tax cutoff would be increased from $1 million to $2 million, so the tax applies to fewer people. House Speaker Ron Mariano says these measures and proposed one-time tax rebates for middle-income workers will help people deal with inflation and economic uncertainty. This has been an ongoing evaluation of what has the best impact to, to the most amount of people. And, and that's what we tried to do. Mariano says the state would use $1 billion in surplus money to fund the tax relief. The legislature must act on the proposal by the end of the month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. In sports, tonight the Red Sox are on the road against the Rays. It's 83 degrees in Boston, mostly clear tonight with lows in the mid-60s. A sunny Tuesday, tomorrow's temperatures in the upper 80s. Tomorrow night, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms, then sunny again on Wednesday. Once again, highs in the upper 80s. Thursday looks to be mostly sunny with a chance of showers and temperatures in the low 80s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Rising inflation rates in the U.S. are squeezing household budgets and threatening a recession. And lower-income countries around the world are especially suffering. World hunger rose in 2021, according to the U.N. COVID vaccination rates in these lower-income countries are still really low. And monkeypox infections are rising while the global economy continues to slow. These are just some of the problems that Dr. Atul Gawande has spent a lot of time thinking about. He's just a few months into his new job as head of the U.S. Agency for International Development's Global Health Office, and he joins us now to talk about the challenges that the world is facing. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. So I, I want to start with the low COVID vaccination rates in lower income countries. We keep hearing public health experts say that to slow COVID down, you need high vaccination rates all over the world. So I'm wondering for your organization in particular, what are the biggest barriers to getting shots into arms in lower income countries right now? Well, um, three of the four segments of the world, they had strong health systems that enabled them to receive the supplies and get those shots into arms. The lower income world, that is the bottom two billion in income in the world, have fragile health systems, not a lot of staff, 
Um, they don't necessarily have the cold chain and the refrigerators in place. And the way we approach that has been providing resources and technical know-how to enable that to happen. But in many cases, it's only been in the last um, six to nine months that the major supply of vaccines have reached those countries where we had already gotten them, you know, first in line. Right, right. Just as those countries are getting the resources and the supplies, we are in a, in a place where Congress is no longer supporting resources for us to continue to enable that surge in vaccination. We have a set of countries where we have helped them get some of the refrigerators into place out into the rural areas. We have been able to help shore up uh, surge staffing for campaign events. And we have proven that in four to 10 weeks, you can double, triple, quadruple the number of people being vaccinated. If I may ask, what countries now are you most worried about when it comes to COVID vaccination rates? Well, if you take sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, they're still under 20% of the population being vaccinated. It's especially concerning because even healthcare workers, the elderly, are still not uh, anywhere near uh, adequately vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So as countries like the U.S. are cutting their global COVID budgets, how do you galvanize Congress to care about COVID as a global problem, to think of global vaccination rates not as a them problem, but as an us problem? Because we're talking about how viruses travel. Well, for one thing, the Congress has supported this as a bipartisan uh, goal from the beginning. Uh, one is bringing home that the next surge will come. This is COVID is a disease that hasn't gone away and, um, and won't for some years to come uh, as an indication. That second, the variants come out of these places that don't have adequate vaccination and control um, of, of these uh, diseases. Third, our economic damage comes from supply chains that reach everywhere around the world. The, you know, our silicon chips depend on rare earth minerals from uh, uh, many of these countries. Our, our uh, ability to have food um, comes from supply chains that reach all the way around the world. That's why um, uh, it is so critical to understand our economic well-being, the stability of countries, the political security of the world, as well as just humanitarian reasons the number of deaths in the world depend on us being supportive of getting the whole world to stop the pandemic. So just to make it concrete for listeners, because of lack of funding now, what are specific things that USAID cannot do at the moment or won't be able to do very, very soon when it comes to global COVID vaccination? Uh, our efforts to bring vaccines around the world, to bring tests around the world and um, antiviral pills will grind to a halt. It is grinding to a halt. That means substantial parts of the world will go are going unvaccinated for uh, months to come. And, uh, and that is a risk to us and the entire world. Well, of course, healthcare. I mean, it's not just about vaccines or masks. It's also about very large issues like making sure folks are safely sheltered, that they have enough to eat. And I'm curious, given the hyper focus on COVID the last couple of years, what public health priorities do you think 
were overlooked during that time and that now need more urgent attention? Or are you even able to look at those priorities yet? Here's the important thing to understand. In two years of pandemic, COVID-19 has created an increase in deaths that has resulted in the first global reduction in life expectancy in a century. Only a minority of those deaths uh, have come directly from COVID. Instead, it's been the effects on the health system with healthcare workers out, with uh, healthcare needs being diverted to COVID. Um, but then also, I talked about supply chains, food shortages, and malnutrition has skyrocketed. Add to it climate uh, disasters with heat waves, climate events like cyclones and hurricanes, and then war that has further cut food supplies, and you have a situation where total death rates in the world have gone up more than 20%. So what is our approach to that? It is to recognize all of our work, whether it's COVID vaccinations, being able to detect if there's a monkeypox outbreak in a given community, um, making sure that the acutely malnourished um, are getting emergency food, that malaria is being treated, all of it goes through primary health care. And the primary health care workforce is the single most important place that we are seeking to make investments. The president has made a request for $1 billion for a health worker initiative um, in the next budget because that is the globally um, for the U.S. investment uh, to support low-income countries because when the health system is fragile, when it's subject to all these kind of health shocks, this is the critical workforce that can pivot to the most important needs. Dr. Atul Gawande, he's currently serving as the head of USAID's Global Health Office. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Thank you. In Yosemite, thick smoke has shrouded the park's soaring granite towers and domes, and flames are threatening hundreds of giant sequoias, which are among the world's oldest trees. Hear more about efforts to save these iconic giants tomorrow on Morning Edition. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Winemakers in Turkey are worried about their future because climate change is affecting their grapes. NPR's Peter Kenyon visited vineyards along Turkey's Aegean coast, where he found vintners wondering how they can survive with rising temperatures. My first stop is at the Erla Winery, not far from the city of Izmir. Karim Kumbasar, general coordinator for Erla Wines, takes me down to the cellars. At the peak of summer, outdoor temperatures can climb to a sweltering 110 degrees Fahrenheit. But down here, air conditioners work to keep the thermometers reading below 64 degrees. This is the very healthy uh, place for the wines. Yes. And for us, of course, during summer, during hot summer. Owner John Ortabash says when he bought this land, it was basically some 160 acres of brush and old olive trees with no water or electricity. But it had been protected from development. Then one day, he found terraces that looked like they'd once been vineyards. 
And then more evidence turned up in the form of amphoras, ancient vessels for holding wine. And they were still smelling wine. I brought the archaeologist who is responsible from the peninsula. They belong to Ionian period, which is about 2,300, 500 years old. It wasn't until the late 20th century that scholars unearthed evidence of ancient winemaking in Turkey dating back to the Neolithic period. Ordebash says he grew to love the region's winemaking history, but these days he worries about climate change. Increased heat can cause grapes to ripen too quickly, altering flavors and possibly diminishing their value as wine grapes. One sign of the rising temperatures, wineries are starting their harvest weeks earlier than what used to be the norm. Ordebash says it's long past time to acknowledge that things are changing and not for the better. I'm so sorry about it because there is only one beautiful planet. We are trying to go to the other planets and there is only dust and minus 500 plus 300 centigrade. But we still don't take care of this planet. Those are concerns shared by Bilge Bengasu, who runs the Erlegia winery with her husband. She was an architect living in Michigan, and her husband was a businessman and sometime musician. So when they started growing international wine grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon on the Aegean coast, she says the experts warned them against it. They said, oh, no, you cannot grow Cabernet in uh, such a hot climate. And we said we wanted to try because we saw that the evenings were quite cool here and uh, we have really chalky soil that can keep cool even though it's hot the roots can stay cool she says the critics quieted down when the Erlegia cabernet turned out to be a success but she worries that a warming planet could eventually overcome the benefits they get from their favorable microclimate i think uh, it's going to create really important challenges. Uh, for example, late ripening types, grapes, this will be a challenge to grow. And Cabernet Sauvignon is one of them, unfortunately. Bengasu says they still have hope, though they may need to find more heat-resistant grape varieties. In the meantime, winemakers here say visitors are coming in large numbers, giving a significant boost to the region's tourism industry. But they know a warming climate could bring dramatic changes in many parts of the world, and Turkey's Aegean coast is no exception. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, on the Erla Peninsula, Turkey. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 5:48 and ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, postponed and disrupted weddings are a familiar aspect of the pandemic. Yesterday in New York City, hundreds of couples got a chance for an I do over. That and more still to come on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. Formal education and training to become an executive coach. Earn your graduate certificate in eight months. Apply now for fall. williamjames.edu.
Coming to WBUR City Space this Saturday, July 16th, The Crossword Show. It's a live comedy event hosted by actor, TV writer, and comedian Zach Sherwin. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. It's 83 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-60s overnight. A sunny Tuesday, tomorrow's highs in the upper 80s, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms tomorrow night. Then Wednesday, once again, sunny and highs in the upper 80s. WBUR supporters include the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Tickets at icaboston.org. And Markulis Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. Democrats may have won the popular presidential vote in five out of the last six elections, but Republicans still control 23 state legislatures. So there's no question Republicans control the future of abortion for now because of what started in state legislatures back in 2010. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. New York City's Lincoln Center threw a massive outdoor wedding yesterday for hundreds of couples who had their plans disrupted by COVID. And Jessica Gould from member station WNYC was there. The trees on the outdoor plaza are wrapped in twinkle lights with lanterns hanging from branches. Some couples are wearing bridal gowns and suits. Others have special his and her masks. Lauren Gibbs and Rob Jenkins say their first wedding in spring 2020 got canceled. It's funny, I still kind of get a little teary when I think about it because we have this beautiful uh, wedding planned with friends and family, a small wedding in Lisbon. and. Um, Yeah, March rolled around and we were a month out from the wedding and the world kind of closed down and we knew that wasn't going to happen. So a couple months later, they chalked some hearts on the sidewalk six feet apart. Rob's father went online and became an officiant. And he married us, though, on our front porch with friends and family, both on the stoop and on the Zoom. Lauren says the pandemic showed them how important it is to seize the opportunities to celebrate together. It's been a really weird and challenging two years for our world, and it's nice to find these moments to just reflect and, you know, just bring joy to ourselves, to each other, and to those around us. Shanta Thake, chief artistic officer at Lincoln Center, says the goal of the event is to affirm love and diversity. The diversity of ages, races, ethnicities, places in the city, people from every single borough are here today, and people whose first time it is at Lincoln Center today, and people who met at Lincoln Center are here today getting married. Hundreds of couples fill the plaza, youngish and older, gay and straight. Staff members hand out bouquets and flower crowns. There are henna stations, a 360-degree photo booth, and champagne. When it's time for the ceremony, couples process down an aisle and take their seats in front of a large stage. Broadway stars serenade them with love songs. A rabbi, an imam, and a minister bless them. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I have to say to you that you are now married. 
Not all of the couples at Lincoln Center are kicking off a marriage. Some are there to celebrate a long one. Fabiola Escobar is wearing a flowy white gown and sequined veil she picked up from Nordstrom Rack. Her husband, Carlos, has a purple tie. Today is our 50th anniversary. Their granddaughter, Brianna, came to be a witness and flower girl. What have they taught you about love? To be nice, to be helpful, to be respectful, to be proud of yourself. And to have fun. The couples gather under a giant disco ball hanging outside so they can dance together under the stars. Jessica Gould, NPR News, New York. Terry and Kenneth Bridwell were married for 51 years. They wanted people to experience joy, and I think music was a really big part of that for them and for us growing up, too. That's their daughter, Shelley Noble. In July of 2020, deep in the pre-vaccine early days of the pandemic, Terry and Kenneth died within days of one another from COVID-19. NPR's remembering people like the Bridwells through the music they loved in our tribute to lives lost called Songs of Remembrance. Shelley Noble and her sister Allison Lever told us their mother Terry was endlessly creative, and Allison says she especially loved singing around the house. Mom would always sing to us. She would just start, you know, singing. And Shelley said she goes, I think she was sometimes doing that to like get us out of being in a bad mood. I dreamed I held you in my arms. I think she did it to make us, just to make us smile or to, especially when you're like preteen or whatever and there's like always angsty people walking around her house, like just to break the tension. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. She loved to do projects with us to keep us busy and to help us be creative and yeah, she was really into sewing. She made my veil for my wedding, and then she made our cousins, and then a family friend, and then my best friend from Atlanta. And they were exquisite. You would have paid thousands of dollars for them. My dad was very opinionated. Quite often, it was his way or the highway, but he was also a lot of fun. I think what's one of my favorite memories is we were in, he used to like really large cars, big Cadillacs. and That purple Cadillac was like the love of his life. He loved that car so much. And he loved to take people riding in it at very fast speeds. <laughs> are, yeah. Are you about to tell him the railroad track story? Because that's what's in my head of like. Go yeah. ahead. Some family, friends, and kids in the car, and it was just kids. He there was, was four, or five, four or five of us, and I think we were going to Pizza Hut. He was flying down whatever road it was because he wanted to. Not We weren't late, but it was just more fun. And, and he was blasting music. Johnny Cash was one of Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash, yes. <laughs> I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went he hit this like kind of a dip and then a railroad track and that (laughs) Cadillac I don't feel like I'm exaggerating when I'm telling you that it flew a little bit before I mean we got a lot of air and we were all like just screaming and laughing (laughs) and he just laughed and laughed and then Johnny Cash is playing in the background I fell for you like a child But the fire went wild. They got sick 
right around the 4th of July in 2020. It was right after the 4th of July. It took my dad down pretty fast because I think his dementia played into it. So he ended up in the hospital, but mom was not in the hospital when she passed away. She was at home. And she thought she was feeling better until like one day she was telling me and she told the healthcare worker that was coming in. She goes, I don't think I can breathe. Then like at three or four in the morning, she called 911 because she couldn't breathe at all. Shelly actually got the message that mom passed away. And then she called me. I was like, what? It was like, I couldn't even believe that that's what had happened. That was terrible. I want people to remember our mom and dad as folks who loved other people deeply and wanted them to feel loved and to feel joy and to really experience life. That was sisters Allison Lever and Shelley Noble remembering their parents, Kenneth and Terry Bridwell of Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, who died from COVID-19. They were both 73 years old. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Leslie Manville plays a 1950s housekeeper who discovers the dress of her dreams and transforms the house of Dior. In theaters Friday. Tickets available now. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate, at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 6 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. Tomorrow afternoon at 1, the House January 6th Committee investigating the insurrection holds its next hearing, this time focusing on ties between the Trump administration and right-wing extremist groups. NPR's live coverage and analysis begins tomorrow afternoon at 1 o'clock on WBUR and WBUR.org. It's 83 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-60s overnight. Tomorrow is sunny Tuesday with highs in the upper 80s. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Public health experts are calling for more work to stop monkeypox from spreading in the U.S. Every day that we aren't throwing the kitchen sink at this outbreak is a lost opportunity. It's Monday, July 11th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Ahead, you'll get the story on President Biden releasing the first full-color images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Also, the journalist Mark Leibovich discusses his new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. 
has just been utter disappointment given the level of submission and the level of sort of soul-selling that so many people uh, have been engaging in. On Wall Street, stocks closed lower today. You'll get a full range of business news at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's 6.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol is still holding a hearing tomorrow to detail the role of extremist groups. However, NPR's Deidre Walsh explains they're delaying another key hearing that had been set for Thursday. The House January 6 Select Committee was expected to hold a public hearing on Thursday, focusing on what then-President Trump was doing during the hours when the Capitol was under siege. But the panel is rescheduling the session, according to a source familiar with the planning. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, a member of the panel, said the committee will show a president who wasn't following his oath of office. It's a very important hearing pay attention because I think it goes to the heart of what is the oath of a leader. You have an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. You can't selectively pick what parts of the Constitution you defend or what branches of government, and you certainly can't be gleeful during that. A new date for the hearing has yet to be announced. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. A judge in Minnesota today has struck down many long-standing restrictions on abortion in that state. As Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports, abortion rights supporters are hailing the ruling as a victory. Citing a 1995 state Supreme Court ruling that guarantees abortion access, Judge Thomas Gilligan ordered that officials stop enforcing a two-parent notification law for minors, as well as a 24-hour waiting period. Gilligan also struck down a law that allows only physicians to perform the procedure and a requirement that abortions after the first trimester be performed in a hospital. Also gone are felony penalties for providers who run afoul of state regulations, as well as laws that require that pregnant people be informed of, quote, particular medical risks. Abortion rights opponents call the decision a, quote, extreme ruling against common sense measures. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in St. Paul. More mutations of the virus that causes COVID-19 continue to concern scientists. Researchers say this version of the Omicron virus, which they're dubbing BA 2.75, is being found in India and elsewhere. Americans expect higher inflation in the near term, but as NPR Scott Horsley reports, a new survey shows they're more optimistic about where rates will be going. The survey by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York finds, on average, Americans think inflation will still be running about 6.8 percent a year from now. That's higher than people were expecting earlier this spring. While worries about short-term price hikes have ramped up in recent months, people seem less concerned about what inflation will look like three to five years from now. On average, survey respondents think inflation will drop back to about 3.6 percent in three years and 2.8 percent in five years. Both those estimates are lower than they were this spring. The Federal Reserve keeps a close eye on where people think inflation's going because that can affect actual prices. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. The Dow was down 164 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. No excuse, vote by mail. will move forward in Massachusetts for now. The state's highest court to date denied a challenge from the state Republican Party. The party says it will ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case and believes the matter presents significant issues of federal and state law. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning has more. 
The mass GOP tried to block the state's new voting laws, arguing that permanently allowing mail-in balloting would lead to fraud. But the Supreme Judicial Court rejected that claim, clearing the way for Secretary of State Bill Galvin to mail out ballot applications ahead of the September 6th primary. Galvin says he's not worried about any appeal. We're proceeding immediately. I'm moving ahead. If they have no injunction against me, they, they better catch me if they can, because I, I'm going to make sure voters have the right to vote if they possibly can. Ballot applications have to go out in less than two weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. The developers of Boston's first housing development for LGBTQ seniors say they will not be cowed by hate speech. This weekend, vandals defaced signs outside the construction site for the development in Hyde Park. WBUR's Sydney Bowles has more. More than 100 members and supporters of the LGBTQ community turned out yesterday to rally against hate speech following the vandalism of the Pride construction site. Gretchen Van Ness is the executive director of LGBTQ Senior Housing, the nonprofit that's spearheading the development. She tells Radio Boston she and her fellow organizers will not let the acts deter them. So whoever those cowards were who defaced our signs and threatened us, we outnumbered them by hundreds between our groundbreaking and all of the neighbors who stood with us yesterday. Van Ness says the Boston Police Department's Civil Rights Division, which is investigating the vandalism, has yet to identify suspects. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sydney Bowles. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts is introducing a bill today that would expand access to voting to young adults. Among other measures, the Youth Voting Rights Act would allow people in every state to pre-register to vote before turning 18. The bill also would require institutions of higher education to have polling places on campus and would require states to accept student IDs for voter verification purposes. Warren calls voting the heart of our democracy and says the U.S. must do everything possible to make sure young people can exercise their right to vote. In sports, the Red Sox are away against the Rays tonight. It's 81 degrees in Boston, lows overnight in the mid-60s, sunny tomorrow, highs in the upper 80s, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms tomorrow night. Then Wednesday, once again, plenty of sunshine and temperatures in the upper 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting those working to improve the immigration system and celebrating the contributions of immigrants to American life. More at carnegie.org slash great immigrants. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. President Biden is set to unveil something truly remarkable, a picture of the universe and its galaxies in their infancy, around 13 and a half billion years ago. It's one of the first images taken by NASA's new James Webb Space Telescope. And joining us now for a preview of the image and what it all means is NPR's Joe Palka. Hey, Joe. Hi, Elsa. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. So let me ask you, what is it about the James Webb Space Telescope that gives scientists this ability to see these galaxies that, like other telescopes, haven't been able to see? Well, this is a really big telescope. It's the biggest space telescope ever built. It has this giant segmented mirror coated in gold leaf, and I've stood next to it. It it, it really is a remarkable piece of equipment. I, I mean, it was on Earth when I stood next to it. I haven't been up into space yet. <laughs> Now, (laughs) JWST, as the telescope is called, is an infrared telescope. That's a wavelength of light we cannot see. It's it's longer wavelength than visible light. Uh And to see it efficiently, you need to go into space where it's cold because warm objects tend to give off infrared light. You don't want to be looking at your neighbor's backyard or something like that. So the reason infrared 
light is key to understanding the universe and seeing these early galaxies is the universe is expanding and the light from those early objects is being stretched out by that expansion. So even though you, if you were standing next to the galaxy, which is also not, I'm not doing, it would be visible because of the expansion, the wavelengths, the light that reaches Earth is are the wavelengths of that light are getting longer, and it's now in the infrared. So if you want to see it, you need to have an infrared. Camera. Ah, okay. So so what will these like distant young galaxies even look like? You think? Well, I have to tell you, they're 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 going to not look all that impressive because JWST is a big telescope. It does have a big mirror. It does capture a lot of light, but this is still light from 13 more than 13 billion light years away. So you only get a few drops of uh, light, and what it might look a little more like a smudge than anything else. <laughs> okay, but. Um, but still, the more of them they can find, the happier astronomers will be. I spoke with Caitlin Casey. She's an astronomer at the University of Texas, Austin, who is going to be using the telescope to hunt for more of these early galaxies. She wants to understand the large structure of the universe, what the universe would look like if you could step back and get a bird's eye view of it. If you zoom all the way out, the entire universe looks like, you know, something like the interior of a sponge where there are these like little filaments and voids. And so what we really want to capture is that structure. <laughs> okay, it's kind of blowing my mind that we're basically living in a giant universe-sized sponge. But anyway, so, you know, beyond <laughs> studying that structure, what are some of the other things scientists hope to learn using the Webb telescope? Well, well, I spent the last few days talking to people, and, and they're really uh, so excited, these astronomers. Um, they're going to be using it to study the, uh, the, the atmospheres of distant planets orbiting distant stars. They're going to be looking for a place capable of sustaining life, and they're going to watch stars and galaxies form. But the coolest thing, I think, is I spoke with Jean Turner from UCLA. She's studying massive stars that tend to hide behind interstellar dust, and, and uh, she says an infrared telescope like JWST will let her see those. What I love more than anything is seeing something unexpected. And that happens all the time. And I know it's going to happen with JWST. It's guaranteed. And, and I think Turner is making a pretty safe bet here because every time they take a new uh, telescope, a new kind of instrument, you see something you weren't expecting. And that's what makes it so really cool to get that first couple of looks. So cool. That is NPR science correspondent Joe Palka. Thank you, Joe. You bet. Monkeypox is very different from COVID-19. It's not fatal and generally doesn't lead to hospitalization. It is mostly not spread through the air. People have been getting it from close physical contact. And a monkeypox vaccine was developed long before the current outbreak. So public health experts say the U.S. should have been able to contain this. Instead, the missteps right now look a lot like the start of the coronavirus pandemic. There are not enough tests or vaccines, and experts have an incomplete picture of the spread. Anne Ramoyne is a UCLA epidemiology professor who has studied monkeypox for years. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, it's nice to be here. Right now, the CDC says there are more than 750 monkeypox cases in the U.S. How accurate do you think that number is? Well, I think that the, the here is, is that we just don't have enough testing. If you don't have widespread testing available, then your situational awareness is limited to just the groups that you're targeting. Uh, I'm certain that we have many more cases out there than we're aware of. And uh, many people who don't know how to access testing or people who try to access it who just are not able to, to get it given the limited capacity at this point. But this is a known disease. So why would the public health community have such a hard time monitoring it? It's been on the radar for years. 
Well, monkeypox is a known disease, but it has been something that's really been limited to uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central Africa in general, and then more recently in 2017, we had an outbreak in, in Nigeria. In West Africa, they just haven't had the resources to be able to to do this kind of testing that, that's needed, and, and we're running into the same problems globally. Just because we know about a virus and we actually know that there are, are ways to detect it um, and vaccines against it doesn't mean that the logistics of deploying those things are going to make it simple for wide access. The vaccines have not been available even to people who are high risk and living in hot spots. Is this something that the, the, the public health community could have been more prepared for in this way? Absolutely. We have known that monkeypox is a potential problem for decades. Um, In 2010, um, my colleagues and I published a paper documenting a very large increase in the incidence of monkeypox since the uh, eradication of smallpox and cessation of, of vaccination against smallpox. And so we no longer have immunity to other orthopox viruses. The good news is we have vaccines, we have therapeutics, we know a fair amount about this virus. The bad news is, is now we have to get the logistics together to be able to confront it head on. In the U.S., this outbreak has so far mostly affected men who have sex with men. And I have heard lots of gay men ask whether the response would be faster, stronger, better if it were not primarily affecting a marginalized group. Do you think there's anything to that? You know, we've seen over and over again marginalized groups more affected than other groups. And and sometimes we see responses slower in in that regard. You know, on, on the other hand, I would say I, I, I would guess that we know more about it because the, the group that it happens to be in happens to be a group that has incredible awareness about, um, about infections, has excellent advocacy, and are by and large a very good group at, at health-seeking behaviors. You know, this virus has been affecting people, marginalized, vulnerable people in sub-Saharan Africa for decades. And in particular, in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I've been working for the last two decades, working on monkeypox. Unless we really focus on attacking these disease threats at their source, we will continue to be chasing behind them. At this point, is it too late to contain this outbreak? Well, I I think that every day that we aren't throwing the kitchen sink at this outbreak is a lost opportunity, a missed opportunity. Whether or not we can contain this virus really depends upon how well we are able to get those vaccines out and um, making it as easy as possible for people to access care, to be able to get tested. And we're not there at this point. UCLA epidemiology professor Anne Ramoyne, thanks a lot. My pleasure. So, Ari, do you want to hear something that's going to make you feel really old? Does anyone ever want to hear something that makes them feel old? Okay, go ahead. Have you ever heard of the gentle minions? Uh, I've heard of gentlemen. I've heard of minions. I've <laughs> never heard of gentle minions. Okay, like minions, right? Like Yeah, me, like me, the me. little yellow guys. Mm-hmm, that's them. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so for their new movie, Minions, The Rise of Gru, there are like these large groups of people, mostly teenage guys, who are suiting up in like dress suits and heading out to theaters to watch this movie. And they're calling themselves the Gentle Minions. I get it. Okay, got it. All right. And then they make these TikToks about it because... Because of, of course. course. Exactly. <laughs> and it, I guess this trend, it's like going viral all over the world. At first, we, we saw the TikToks from the American kids at first. So then we just decided to try it out like in Singapore. Okay, that's 18-year-old Joshua Law from Singapore. And he appeared in one of these gentle minion videos that got like 1.3 million views on TikTok. Oh, no big deal. Just 1.3, huh? Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, whatever. And I guess this video is one of the tamer ones, supposedly. Uh, Is this safe for public radio? (laughs) Well, it turns out like some of these kids, they get pretty rowdy. Like, they're yelling in the theater and they're even... (laughs) They're even starting these mosh pits. And some theaters have gone as far as to ban wearing suits altogether. Ban wearing suits. Yeah. Okay. Why is this trend going viral? Well, you know, Ari, being NPR, we asked an expert about this. What a good idea. Overall, it's just everything is highly mimetic. That's why it's also kind of just taking off. Mimetic, like a meme? I think so. Okay, so that's Jennifer Greigel, an associate professor of communications at Syracuse University and an expert in social media and memes. And they say the rising popularity of social media influencer as a career path contributes to some of the absurdity that we are seeing online right now. We have all been geared towards more media. So, you know, again, this just happened to be where you could grow your influence. And I suppose free marketing for a movie that's doing pretty well at the box office. Yeah, apparently it's doing awesome at the box office. But Joshua Law, you know, that teenager we heard from earlier, Mm -hmm. he actually wasn't a huge fan of the movie. If I'm going to be honest, I didn't like the movie. I thought it was mediocre at best. So why did he do the whole suit up and post on TikTok about it thing? Mm Mm-hmm. I, I think I think we're just bored. It's not really anything funny. It's just we have nothing else better to do. I, I guess there are worse things bored teens can do. I can think of a few. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 618, and coming up on All Things Considered, the journalist Mark Leibovich discusses his new book focusing on the blind loyalty that Republicans have shown to the previous president. The title, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. WBUR supporters include the New Bedford Whaling Museum, Art, History, Science, and Culture Museum. Come experience the spirit of the South Coast. Visit whalingmuseum.org to learn more. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. On Wall Street, stocks closed down today. The Dow was down 164 points to close at 31,173. The Nasdaq fell 262 points to 11,372. The S&P 500 dropped 44 points, closing at 3854. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 630, including a report exploring whether the nationwide baby formula shortage might be relieved by the reopening of the largest factory of baby formula maker, Abbott. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. 
It's 81 degrees in Boston. Lows dropping to the mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, a sunny Tuesday. Temperatures in the upper 80s. Tomorrow night, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms. Then sunny on Wednesday. Highs once again in the upper 80s. Looking ahead to later in the week, Thursday, mostly sunny with a chance of showers and temperatures in the low 80s. Friday, mostly sunny, a high about 80. This is 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Donald Trump has been teasing he plans to run for president in 2024. The first time he ran for president, his fellow Republicans, well, they were not so welcoming. He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. We are not going to turn over the conservative movement to a con artist who is telling This man is a pathological liar. The man is utterly amoral. Morality does not exist for him. Well, those Republicans, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, Florida Senator Marco Rubio, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, and many others have since changed their tune. Trump can be a handful, but he is the most dominant figure in the Republican Party. Donald Trump is committed to cut taxes. Uh, The Republican candidate for president. Donald J. Trump. Well, I, I, I am supporting the Republican nominee because I think Hillary Clinton is an absolute. That fealty, that blind loyalty is something that Atlantic writer Mark Leibovich says has been central to Trump's ability to hold on to power in the Republican Party. And it's also the subject of his new book, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Mark Leibovich joins me now. Hey there. Hey, Juana. So your book begins in the midst of the 2016 Republican presidential primary, but I want to focus on actually some of the later years that your book covers, the period surrounding the 2020 election and culminating with the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. Mm-hmm. You know, we are on the eve of new hearings by the congressional panel investigating those attacks. And I, I'm i so curious, watching them what, with this book and your interviews for it in the background, what have you learned about the former president and his allies? Nothing good. What's astonishing to me, first of all, I mean, given everything we've been through with Donald Trump and continue to learn about Donald Trump, you know, he remains so wildly popular in the Republican Party, which is ultimately his superpower. The reason for this superpower is because none of the putative leaders of the Republican Party have pushed back on him at all. Kevin McCarthy, Lindsey Graham, even you know Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, who might be less vocal about it, have enabled him at every turn. And also with the hearings, You see the performance of Liz Cheney, Cassidy Hutchinson, some of these state election workers who come before them, and their very simple, brave testimony doing their patriotic work despite great risk to themselves, threats, intimidation. They do it anyway, and that stands in such sharp relief from the utter silence that continues from Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell on down. They are pretending that these hearings don't exist, and what this book does is it gives voice to all of them as they made this deal, made this calculation over the last five, six years. You brought up the names there of a number of prominent Republicans who you spoke to about the events of January 6th. And I have to say, I was particularly struck by what former House Speaker Paul Ryan told you about what that day was like for him. You wrote that he broke down into tears that day. Well, I mean, I think Paul Ryan is an interesting case. I mean, he clearly was not a big Trump fan and didn't do that much to hide it early on. But he worked very, very closely with Donald Trump because Nothing was more important to Paul Ryan than, one, keeping his caucus happy, but two, tax reform. So 
Fast forward to a few months ago, I sort of asked him about what it was like to see what he was there for the inception for and what it turned out to be at the insurrection. And he described just sitting there watching things unfold on January 6, 2021, and just sobbing and sobbing uncontrollably. And he said, look, I'm not a crier. And there I was just sobbing in front of the TV. I recognized a lot of my old security details, you know, sort of going mano a mano against the, the rioters on TV. I wrote them emails trying to buck them up. I didn't know what else to do. And, you know, he looked so miserable at the prospect of what has happened and very despairing. And I finally said, do you yourself have any regrets? Were any of these tears of complicity? And as we're sitting here, you're still on the board of Fox News. I mean, you know, there is a very direct correlation between Donald Trump's continued viability in your party and Fox News. And he didn't want to go there. He didn't want to sort of explore the issues of complicity, uh, certainly on the record, that I wanted him to go to. But clearly the conflict was very much brought to bear in that conversation. There are also Republicans involved, like Cassidy Hutchinson, for example, who despite threats and enormous pressure testified before the January 6th committee Do you think something like that, and we may hear more from other similarly-minded Republicans soon, is something like that enough to turn the tide? That's a great question, Juan. I've thought a lot about that. Um, I think, you know, one of the gifts of the January 6th committee, I mean, obviously Republicans are saying, oh, it's a slanted committee. It's not legitimate. We're just ignoring it. Uh, Most of the testimony has come from Republicans. And the example of Cassidy Hutchinson, the example of the Ukraine resistance, the example of even you know the conservatives in the British Parliament. I mean, there are examples all around us of what courage looks like, simple courage, just simply telling the truth. And it has never been cast in sharper relief. And I have to think that what has been going on in these 1-6 committee meetings has been quite shaming, probably more so than Republicans realize, which might, I think, account for maybe why Pat Cipollone, the former White House counsel, agreed to testify in a transcribed session, but also why I think others might come forward in the next few weeks, and hopefully they will. By and large, your book focuses on the class of elected Republicans, and I guess I'll call them professional Republicans, who are in many ways responsible for or have a hand in President Trump's rise. But at the same time, there are many voters out there who support the former president, his ideologies, the ways in which he walks through the world. So can you kind of talk about that interplay there? People liked what he was selling. Yeah. No, I mean, look, this is not an indictment of Republican voters necessarily. Our Trump voters, and I don't think anyone reading this will look to it to understand what are they thinking, what are their concerns, why do they still like Trump. My focus was on the people who have allowed Donald Trump to remain so popular, i.e., the putative leaders of the Republican Party in the various states, in the House, in the Senate, who continue to support him, who continue to live in such fear of him. And also, look, a lot of his cabinet, I mean, up and down the ladder, I mean, they all very privately know exactly what this guy is all about. Does Mike Pence get credit for doing the bare minimum um, to actually stand before Donald Trump and actually say no at the very end? Sure, I give him some credit. But ultimately, if you're going to try to make a dent in Donald Trump's devotion and the cult of personality that he continues to enjoy within the Republican Party, you need to do more than the bare minimum. You have been a chronicler of Washington for a long time now, and you have known many of the people that you've, you're writing about here, the elected officials, the operatives, from top to bottom for some time. In writing this book, was there anything that you learned that surprised you? I mean, I think a lot of it 
with some of them has just been utter disappointment given the level of submission and the level of sort of soul selling that so many people that have been sort of entrenched figures in DC for so long uh, have been engaging in. I have never seen as a reporter in Washington covering politics for you know, almost a quarter century, a bigger gap between what elected Republican quote unquote leaders will say to me privately versus what they will say on the record. The yawning gap between the public and private is, is just striking because they all know better. Mark Leibovich is the author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Juan. I appreciate it. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. It's 81 degrees in Boston. You can expect mostly clear skies tonight with lows in the mid-60s. A sunny Tuesday. Tomorrow's highs reaching the upper 80s. Tomorrow night, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms. Then Wednesday, sunny again and highs again in the upper 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill, less than an hour from Boston, welcoming families to its new whimsical garden, the Ramble. More at nebg.org. And Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.